0: Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, It's wonderful to see folks here. Uh, You're kind of halfway through, depending on how you measure your AAR race. Uh, My name is Lori Patton. I am uh, ambiguously the president of the American Academy of Religion, having just handed over the gavel to my successor Jose Cabazon at the business meeting, but still having two wonderful plenaries. Um, so I'm in an in-between state, uh, but I'm delighted to welcome you all here today. Uh, and uh, we, as you know, the three plenaries that we have designed for this year are about the public sphere and the relationship between individual scholars and the public sphere. Our first yesterday in this very room uh, was a wonderful panel on uh, uh, expanding and creating and redefining, particularly redefining the public sphere for Muslim independent intellectuals and uh, those who work on Islam. Uh, Today we are focusing in those that triumvirate of expanding, redefining, and creating on the expanding part. Um, And tomorrow, we will be looking at 25 years of social media. um, And that will be a very exciting one, uh, religion and social media, and that's creating a public sphere. So um, today, I am delighted. Uh, to welcome Kate Bowler. And Kate and I were at Duke together, but we know each other through music and musical engagements at Duke. Um, And in addition, I know very little except as a generalist about Kate's field of study. But um, that's why these conversations at the AIR are are so exciting, um, as I've had the uh, opportunity to read in much of her work and to think with her, even though I am a South Asian historian of religion. Um, So let me tell you a little bit about Kate. If you don't know, she is a historian at Duke Divinity School. She's an associate professor of uh, the history of Christianity in North America. And her book, Blessed, a History of the American Prosperity Gospel, from Oxford received widespread media attention as the first history of the movement based on divine promises of health, wealth, and happiness. She has researched and traveled in Canada and the United States, interviewing megachurch leaders and everyday believers about how they make spiritual meaning of the good and the bad in their lives. And her work on the prosperity gospel has been featured in the New York Times, The New Republic, The Guardian, Time Magazine, The Atlantic, The Economist, The Washington Post, NPR, and BBC. So truly um, acclaimed scholar in many different ways, um, who also has, I think, the skill and the talent of integrating her own personal reflections. Um, and, and and I want to just begin with that question, which is you worked on the prosperity gospel to great success, and then your scholarly questions became real ones um, that you had to ask yourself. Um, are good things a sign of God's grace, bad ones a sign of God's judgment? Um, Tell us about that journey, just so we can get oriented and situated. Yeah,
1: sure. And hello, crowd of 90% people I know. Thank (laughs) you for coming. 10% of whom I will gladly meet afterward, so we can vacation together in the future. Um, Yeah, I was just kind of, I thought of my work as being uh, something that really interested and excited me, but also just part of the academic super train. You know, like at some point you find yourself accidentally hyper-specialized, you know what I mean? Like, you look up at your library one day, and you're like, whoa, this really got out of control. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, an expert in the idea that good things happen to good people, and I was really good at a- asking that compassionate question. Like, so when, when you get that promotion or when you get that diagnosis, like, how does that, how does that make you think about how God loves you and if you're faithful? And, like, all the kind of tender questions that get at the heart of whether we think that our lives are going to work out for us. Based on our faith and our effort, and it felt compassionate and authentic to my training. And then, um, and then I started to get a uh, really weird stomach pain. And I'm like a, a decent advocate of, or like narrator of my own experience. And so I did a lot of uh, using my healthy outdoor voice at uh, doctors for about three months, and it just went nowhere. And we thought maybe it was my appendix, and I mean my um, gallbladder, and no big deal. And then one day it just hurt so badly that I refused to leave a doctor's office until they gave me a new scan. And uh, the next day I was in my office, conveniently uh, attached to Duke Hospital, and uh, I got a call from a physician's assistant that said that I had stage four cancer. And that was like the that was like the end of a world I knew like, I had this, I had, like, a a good plan, I thought. Um, Just, like, work hard, get tenure, check, check, check. And then everything came apart really quickly. And if you've ever been sick, you know that most of it is, like, fear and waiting rooms. So there's a lot of, like, sprinting for what feels like your life and then just, like, watching someone else get their, like, called for blood work. And in that, like, intense... um, stop start i realized that i was uh, not prepared to answer the questions that i really had which was like why am i so outraged like i thought maybe i would be um you know just the regular like i don't want to die or i'm only 35 but i was like actually outraged that this would happen to me yeah and then i thought i don't think i'm being honest about what i thought would happen to my life and maybe there's something about this thing that i've been studying all along that maybe good things should happen to good people that i've been a little bit more affected by than i expected yeah. so i started to write not assuming a public in any way cuz it was so intensely private and, in fact, everything I said out loud I realized was quickly becoming a lie. Like, I got sick, and I was, like, a world-class liar immediately. I was like, no, it's great, Mom and Dad. Like, everything's really going to, I'm sure it's fine. They'll we'll figure beat it this. out. Oh, winners, a lot of winning against cancer. Yeah. I was, like, starring in a reality show, but a girl gets cancer, but is, like, really excited about yeah. it. Um, and, like, there's also, I realized like, a, a lot of performative gender stuff that goes along. Yeah with um, wanting to be strong and optimistic and you know, you're a mom and you don't want to scare anyone, but also you're trying really hard not to be bad sick. You yeah. want to be good sick. Because yeah. if you're good sick, then you will successfully audition for the consideration and care of people who may save your life.
0: Right, heroic sick. So, oh,
1: yeah. I, I would, I, like here's a picture of my kid. Yeah. Oh, I think our kids are the same age. Yeah. Like you're putting in all the hooks right. to try to g- build the bridge.
0: So when we talked earlier um, about talking together now, you said something very profound that you just raised briefly now, and that is um, about lying and writing. So (laughs) I asked you, you know, what made you start to write in a way that made you a public intellectual that's different than a successful, hyper-specialized scholar? Yeah. Um, Tell me a little more about the use of writing as a way of no longer lying.
1: Yeah. Well... I think what I was bumping up against that I couldn't totally figure out was the idea that I was, I was unable to speak because there were these thick cultural scripts that were being given to me and that none of them were quite true anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and part of it was things I'd learned in the prosperity gospel or just simply in American bootstrapping. It's, and it was that of hyper-individualism, that if I simply tried harder, I could be self-constituting. And then I just came to the end of myself really quickly. I mean, partly because you're on so many drugs and you're getting so many surgeries and, and you're in a lot of cotton and people are seeing you, especially your colleagues, because as I mentioned, my office is attached to the hospital. Mm-hmm. So people you previously wanted to be very serious with are now like wandering in in the middle of your wound changing and you're like, well, I guess this is where we're at now. Mm-hmm. So I think um, I wasn't able to... I wasn't able to pretend that I was invincible anymore mm-hmm. academically. And so I started to use the only thing I knew, which was writing to do sort of intellectual, I thought maybe theological archeology span and like get in deep and be like, why? Cause you know, when you're writing and there's like a kernel of a thing you're on the edge of, but you're not totally, you, I just would write until I, until I saw it. And then I was like, Oh, that is not flattering. <laughs> And then for some reason, I let other people read it. <laughs> so. So,
0: so that that is something that I've been thinking about as you've been talking, which is there's an industry in journaling, right? So yeah. you could have kept a journal. Yeah. But there was something else that motivated you yeah. to think about the wider world needing this.
1: Well, I thought I was going to die for sure that year. And I yeah. was angry. I was yeah. extremely angry.
0: Yeah. And so the move to... Not just keep it in a journal, but well, go. Like screw it. I mean, like. To New York Times. What chips or,
1: am I gonna put in? Right. And um, it was actually the um, lovely and erudite Molly Worthen who had this, uh, who, as an amazing professor of history at Chapel UNC Chapel Hill, and she yeah. writes these amazing op eds for the Times all the time. So she had this editor she loves that she worked with. So when yeah. I came up with something that was mostly me crying into my laptop and lightly short circuiting it, I was like, well, that looks about right. And then I just said, Molly, do you know somebody? And she said, yes. And I emailed it off. And maybe because I was used to, like, selling out my library copies, like, hitting that 500 mark of blessed a history of the American prosperity gospel that I didn't really expect. You know, you just write it to write it. Yeah. Like, my dad's a historian. And one he used to do these... Um, like early morning talk show radio in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And so for him, like <laughs> public theology, which I loved, he would drive out in 4 in the morning to, to these Q&As on Christmas, because he's an expert in Christmas. And he would drive out. He'd be just bleary, sitting in front of a microphone, and then they would inevitably bump him for that second hour to talk about potholes right. in, Winnipeg. in Winnipeg. Of course, and I thought to do it. That's <laughs> about right. Like that's where we fall in the totem pole <laughs> right. of people listening to us. Right. Like somewhere right under potholes. So, but I, I, I'm yeah. struck
0: by this in a certain way. Two things, and I would love to hear your comments on both of them. The first is um, there is a lot about participation in the public sphere and ideas in the academy about what that looks like and what the public understanding of religion might look like that suggests that we are we have a direction where you know become a public scholar and then we write the op-eds and go to the workshops and then submit and someone loves us and it's very directional like we write a book and um, submit it to an editor in the scholarly world I'll never forget my first conversation with an actual agent rather than a uh, university press person who said, "You've been so successful in the academic world, you should stay there." You know, oh. <laughs> it was like, right? And I ignored her. Mean? Thank goodness, I know. But it was really, you know, kind of an interesting moment because I was like, "Okay, how do I do this?" And she's like, "Ah." So, th- I think this your story is also very similar, right? Which is, you didn't care. You know, there was a kind of it wouldn't have mattered to you if it had been. Um, in a church in Chapel Hill that it got read, or the church newsletter. uh, And it happened to be the New York Times, which was wonderful. And it happened to strike a chord about this universal thing called human suffering and whether you deserve it or not, which you also happen to be an expert on. It was a kind of wonderful thing. But you didn't sit and strategize with an agent about your quote-unquote platform.
1: No, no. Well, I, I wrote because I felt poisoned.
0: Yeah. Yeah,
1: I did, and I realized it, part of it was the the tradition in which I was formed, and part of it was the prosperity gospel I'd come to know, yeah. and part of it was this American civil religion, right. I think, of uh, endless possibility. Right. And I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't know how to outwork something that was yeah. just about to eclipse me. Yeah. So I was uh, yeah, I was really scared. Yeah. And also the, the op-ed thing was a bit dumb, I will just say. Like it was a bit dumb to write at a time when I was feeling like this yeah. um, because the flood of mail I wasn't prepared to receive. Right. I mean, part of it was so confirming because you realize, oh, we're all experiencing this thing yeah. where we've come to the end of ourselves and we, we can't see past the edge. And then the rest of it was like, um, Dear Kate, comma, surrender your petty mm. understandings of meaning into an uncaring universe. Sincerely, Joe from Indiana. Right. <laughs> You're like, jo- thanks, Joe. <laughs> Joe, <laughs> Joe doesn't Let's get take that i chemo right now. Right, right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of it was like the, the public is yeah. not. Yeah, doesn't really care that much about your feelings. But, so. Yeah, that, this is <laughs> as much as amazing the way that works. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, yeah. I'm except exercising extreme verbal restraint on a couple things. So I want to focus on our job today, which is around <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry, the sorry. public sphere. No, yes. it's great.
1: We are for it. We're uh, for it, right? We are. We, yeah. we like it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We like the public We're understanding into it. of religion. We're we think it's a good thing. Yeah.
0: Can we go back to um, the the Manitoba? And I'm, I'm identifying only because one of my favorite things uh, that I ever did was on Middlebury circuit, closed circuit TV, oh, which, nice. you know, and having had other broader context, yeah. the Middlebury closed circuit TV is run by a cop who's uh, has a PhD in philosophy and decided that <laughs> a PhD in philosophy wasn't going to be as effective. He wasn't going to be as effective a human being as he would as a really good cop <laughs> in Middlebury, Vermont. So and then he decided to run a TV station. So As one does. Th- th- I know. <laughs> wouldn't you think? Yeah. And it was a lovely moment, series of moments about, you know, truly philosophical questions that he wanted to ask his neighbors. That was it. Yeah. It was a deeply local motivation. And I think there's a vibrancy to that. Mm-hmm. You're still going to get the funky, you know, mail, but the funky yeah. mail, you're going to meet the person buying the oranges in the grocery store. Yeah. It'll get weirder. Who sends you the funk. Yeah. Right. It gets weirder. <laughs> But I think that there's a power in the local Mm -hmm. that you clearly have lived as well. And Mm -hmm. so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the tension between your deep commitment to the local, to the empathic interview, Mm. to the um, ways in which you understand community and that big sphere that you also have been part of.
1: Mm. Yeah, well, because it was really the local that helped me... It was my little, oh, let me. That's here. okay, I'm good. Memo. Thanks. There's a lot of good adjectives about me on there, and I'm very <laughs> grateful for that. Um, I, you know, as, a, as an immigrant, I didn't have my family structure. I didn't have my, I had my school. And that was a little embarrassing, as I mentioned, to be immediately um, turned inside out in front of the people that, like, two weeks ago I'd really wanted to, to impress at a wine and cheese function. And then be like, no, come on in. Uh, no, they're just adjusting my meds. Uh, I won't tell you everything I've ever thought, Ellen Davis. <laughs> um, uh, but like the feeling of their hands on my head, the the idea that I, I didn't yet know, um, I didn't know who I could ever be. Again, I think that's maybe just how it is, like, when something comes apart. is like, you have no idea if you ever have a gift yet to give. Yeah. And the thing about being surrounded and having that version reflected back to you is it helped me learn, sorry for all of this. Um, you are so good. Okay. This, I'm hoping there was a Kleenex in there somewhere. Um, it, like, it taught me what hope was. Because hope felt like, it, it did feel like, uh, it felt like being delusional. Um, You know, when they give you like a 30% chance to make it, and then people start telling you to dream big, you're like, I feel like I might dream a little smaller. I mean, dream reasonably is not like a bumper sticker that people (laughs) have. Um, Well,
0: there is a a Any Functioning Adult 2020, which is my favorite bumper sticker, (laughs) right? Any Functioning Adult. (laughs) It's very funny.
1: It was actually my my community at Duke Divinity School and my scholarly community that helped me figure out, which was very local for me, that that helped me figure out what agency meant in that context. Um, It was uh, the Young Scholars uh, Program that comes out of um, IUPUI. They just, uh, they created what they called uh, an academic meal train, where if I was working and I wanted to just like work during chemo and I needed a secondary source, they would go look up a footnote for me. And it was like, what better thing is there in the universe than someone who gets your particular absurdity? Totally. And they helped me feel like I could be on stilts, like my step could just be a little longer. I think there's a very interesting space in um,
0: local publics for a certain kind of compassion in public. Um, and that's a really interesting space to be in um, like that. You know, that, that the family situation is not quite the same thing. I mean, some yeah. of us are lucky to have yeah. family that could look up footnotes, footnotes but some of us yeah. choose family that don't care about our footnotes, and that's a good thing. Yeah. But I think then that secondary layer which is a local public, is yeah. really in between, in a
1: way, a public and a private sphere. Yes, that's right. And, and the, the, the larger public can have a very fun house mirrors effect, because it will immediately try to tell you who you are and where right. you fit into a national conversation. Yeah. And you, you're not really trying to fit into a national conversation. You're right. just trying to figure out where your best gifts reflect some kind of larger meaning-making and it was my scholarly community that helped me sort of thread the needle on that I think because I thought um when I started doing the memoir writing I thought well that was the that was sort of like the deep work I could do and I think when you're sick there's a lot of legacy work that everyone's trying to do just be known like, what right. if I'm gone? How am I known? Right. And we're known if we're, because we're obsessed with our jobs, that's why we're here, is yeah. we want to be known in this, in what we can write. Yeah. But um, sweet, sweet Doug Winiarski, who is my mentor for Young Scholars, he said, Kate, I think you think that the op-eds or the memoirs is the place where you're, like, where you could be really known or remembered for your family. But with your academic work, like, with the scholarly stuff, the stuff that seems less accessible... He was like, Kate, even if the worst happens, uh, people will still find you there. Yeah. And the way he said it, that was the most, um, like, like, everything we make, it's actually really just like a little sliver of who we are. Right. That was so comforting. That means yeah. it doesn't, we can kind of make anything right. as long as it's our, our beautiful thing. Yeah. Okay. You, I got to simmer down. <laughs> <laughs> You're great. I well. think everybody's with you. <laughs> Sorry. Um,
0: So, finding you there in the scholarship, you mean, in addition to your testimonial?
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. More testimonial work. Yeah.
0: So, you've said something a couple sentences ago about continuing on in the public sphere, in the big public sphere, Um, and you have, and that's been fantastic for all of us. Um, We all love reading your essays, your work, Um, and you also talked about it, and I empathize uh, about the funhouse mirror. Right? There are. There are usually two, that the, you know, the theory of the two bodies of the king, right? Yes. Right, right? So that there's who you are, and then there's people's idea of you. And once you become a public persona, they're going to make those two bodies all the time, right? You have yeah. that public persona out there that you, I sometimes even have conversations with my public persona, like, oh, what do you think about that today? And <laughs> it's 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 a really interesting exercise. Yeah. So... What's interesting to me is that during that year, you published a lot, wrote a lot, it was amazing, you learned that there were many ways in which publication and being public mattered to you that was also scholarly, and then things got a little better, and then you kept in the public sphere. And you still have now this very amazing public engagement. So tell me a little bit about that journey, the next piece of that journey.
1: Yeah, well, I wanted to, what, I mean, I thought part of the problem with cultural scripts, I thought about suffering, was that it always relies on the idea that there's a special, uh, there's the right kind of suffering person. And right. he or she is very special and extremely plucky right. and will likely overcome. The heroic, yeah, sock person. And I was concerned that by writing this and kind of focusing on me, like which is the nature of memoir, that it would accidentally cause people to have the mistaken impression that I am special. Right. And I am unfortunately not special. <laughs> um, so I started a podcast called Everything Happens to talk about everybody else's befores and afters to try to thicken up the language and the and 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 extend a range of categories in which people could see themselves um, living with precarity, so not necessarily a diagnosis but understanding their own fragility, attempting to move toward interdependence and being absolutely unable to figure out exactly what language would help them get there and so that helped me um, that helped me think through the category of limited agency that helped me understand various um, Gender, racial, economic implications. Those conversations helped me move beyond. I think maybe also the narcissism of pain, where you're positive mm-hmm. that you are the only one who has ever experienced yeah. that one feeling. Yeah. So that did help me extend the reach of my, of what I thought could be done in public. Um, even though it, I didn't like podcasts are not very like serious. I sort of I just made a slogan called "Don't be above it," mm-hmm. and I committed myself to it.
0: (laughs) And when you say don't be above it, you mean public engagement is sometimes understood from a scholarly perspective as being less serious in some way.
1: I have received this feedback before. Right. Right.
0: Yes. So um, I'm going to sit on a small (laughs) little soapbox and then get off of it, which is I do think that public engagement has its own rigor um, and that we can evaluate public scholarship with we need to develop those criteria, but it's an incredibly important piece of criteria. There's a reason why there's journalism school, for example, right? You, It is a craft. It is an understanding. It's not just taking what you know and making it simpler or making it more accessible. There's some other piece to it. Yeah. And so I'm really glad you put that mantra up over because you probably also saw that some of the things you were intuitively doing yeah. We're also part of a craft, would that be accurate? yeah,
1: and then the 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 next academic book I ended up writing ended up largely being a history of the spiritual marketplace, and that offered me sort of sharper categories of what I think the public sphere demands of all of us yeah. in terms of um, i mean sometimes it's just in terms of uh, pacing so If I mean, for many of us who write op-eds out of our specialties, we're writing out of eight to ten to fifteen years of research experience, and then they're like, "You've got seven hundred words. Go, yay!" (laughs) In the beginning, Um, and uh, and then for someone like a a lot of the journalists I know, when they get a, a book sabbatical, they get three months. And so there's a um, there's a and yeah. there's a pacing question right. about when we feel that we can create a generalizing tone. When are we experts? Right. And I struggled in initially to to step into more. I think um, to make more normative declarations about what I thought was some of the pernicious side effects of our scripts around suffering. I was a little worried about at first because when do you get to be an expert right. in normative statements? Yeah. Um, but then I just got tired and scrappy, so no. <laughs> uh, then I just went for it. Um, but the, this, the the book on The Preacher's Wife about studying women uh, religious celebrities was a very eye-opening look into how um, it, the American uh, entertainment industry, and which has its own uh, religious subset, creates national brands around conversations and the v- breathless pace at which that... Um, that industry requires people to operate. So we're not. I think one of the things I think is most special about academia is that we are afforded the luxury of long-form thought, right. and we are the one of the last refuges, ref, refuges, refuges, refuges. After a while, you like
0: refuges. Yes. Struggle
1: good. to spell yeah. um, sanctuaries uh, <laughs> for long-form thought. Right. And uh, I think it's an incredible privilege, and I, I do think it will bear up the weight of civilization at times. And
0: um, I love the fact that perhaps in that really hard year, you are now less unafraid. You are more courageous in no, making thanks. larger statements thanks. like that. Right? Um, I, I think a lot about... So, so just c- continuing on that yeah. thread and your trajectory you had your first motivation of engaging with public, which was, here you are, it's time, I need a legacy, I gotta speak my truth. Second was, now I need to speak in a different way that doesn't just focus on me that's a really different motivation than many people have for the public sphere, which is usually that they like the focus on them, right? And so that's interesting in its own right. You're like, speaking of me. Right. Right. (laughs) What do you think of me? Yes. Um, So is that still your motivation? Or are you now in
1: almost a third phase of of Kate Bowler intellectual, public intellectualdom? Sounds horrifying to me. Um, I think part of it was when I... Wrote that first op ed, I felt like I was introduced to a community of of um, the fellowship of the afflicted right and when they wrote in i no longer i felt uh, responsible to uh, to all of us who don't who have to live in liminality yeah. and um, and because my situation is not always curable but f- but but that I live with chronic cancer, yeah. it meant that I never got to get over it and then uh, so uh, sometimes in um interviews, I would get a question like, so it's been a couple years. Like, when are you going to get over, you know, the thing that happened? And, uh, I just, I remember feeling very like offended because I thought, why would I want to get over this? The, the, I think the ability to see clearly, frankly, that we are all more delicate than we'd like to be and that it causes certain obligations. I had originally thought of it. I had, I had, um, as just creating enough space to write, uh, but then last year, roughly at this time, my friend Rachel died, and uh, and she was also a public person. And when she died, I saw all. The, it was like a hurricane around her that it, it touched everybody else's grief. But then what it ends up doing is centering on the the family and the people immediately around Rachel, because she was a brand, and uh, and a conversational centerpiece. And it was so entirely unfair that we force sufferers to bear the weight of our theodicies. Mm, And uh, I thought, (laughs) (laughs) so, and because I was in a better place, I thought, oh, I'm actually in a position that I can help. Mm -hmm. So I made sure that with the podcast and with the infrastructure that I have, that I could build up enough of a team that I can hire someone whose expertise is in grief responses And that we could redirect mail so that everyone who wants a response and needs one around these questions would get one. So so that feels like the community
0: piece. What I'm struck by in your response is, um, you know, I think a lot about multiple publics. And the fact that we need to move beyond the idea that there's a single public out there. Yeah. Um, And... What that also means, I think, and you provide an excellent example of ethical reflection, even on the big public, like even on the CNN thing. Um, So many of us who live in various ways in, in public lives, you know, you ignore the comments, you don't read the comments, because the big public is hell right now there is nothing about the big public that isn't hell so you create a smaller public Mm -hmm. community of care Mm -hmm. if you will Mm -hmm. or you just ignore the big Mm -hmm. public even though you know you're out there Mm -hmm. so it's a really interesting space because you got those awful comments that you probably chose after a certain point not to read um, or to experience differently yeah so then Instead, what you did was take that big public, and make it um, something that could be of use to most of the public that chose to engage you. Mm, Would that be a a good way to describe what you, your third phase? Yeah.
1: Well, I like this. I I feel (laughs) like I am moving somewhere, and I like it. Um, Yeah, I think. and I think just recognizing my own limitations, and, and that helped me understand. I mean, we need more language other than compassion fatigue or it, what right. it feels like to be out there for all of us. The second we're on Twitter, we feel the weight of it. Yeah. I wish there was a better word for, like, storyful. The feeling of being, of, like, you're bearing up the weight of so many kinds of stories. Right. And, uh, and, and you, you don't know how to, um, to fully feel like you can stand up under it. Yeah. But because I believe in experts, I, I just believe that we are, we can create teams of people who can build better communities. And yeah. it's been lovely. I mean, I, I use the podcast to get to know different institutions who do it really well. Uh-huh. Like I did an episode with, um, like I had my own questions of like, how do I tell my kid when I'm like, when do I tell my kid that I'm sick? It's a horrible question. So I like went to Sesame Street. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. you guys are adorable. <laughs> but also run by an incredible team of child psychologists. Right. And so just to be able to ask honest questions, to know that we can use other intelligent and kind institutions to hold our questions for us. And right. it makes me feel like our our... That the work of religion is so much more interconnected with with, uh, with a broader range of public institutions yeah. that I hadn't expected, and it, it it's kind of that part makes it feel like it's kind of lovely out yeah. there, like weather's not so bad.
0: Um, Krista Tippett does a beautiful conversation around this, and it's why she's relentlessly going forward with On Being in her mm-hmm. own space apart from NPR, et cetera, mm-hmm. is she's convinced that what's happening at a local level is far more transformative of our society Mm. than what we see in the big public space. And and I think that that's a power in its own right.
1: Because I I do think people get confused with the nature of, like, the very distortive nature of entertainment celebrity as a cast, that surely if we have these um, avatars that we can understand our own experiences through. And really, I just want everyone to know, like... Could they put their kid in Girl Scouts? Like, what are right. the local things that hold up the weight of our lives? Right. And with the fragility of institutions, there's so few places that get to hold us.
0: And there's a wonderful example in uh, what you just told us about the alliance between religious institutions and academic institutions and secular institutions, yeah. which I think has got to be the new formula yes. for a new public space, yeah, I agree. Is it, are in those alliances. Yeah. And that we actually... when. Whichever institution we are, we have come to the end of our rope. Yes, that's we right. We can turn to other institutions, as you said, to hold that suffering yeah. differently. Which that's right. Is thing and so
1: I do see that as kind of my public role is like, come for the Kate, stay for the institutions. Right. And just like push them into other places. Because those are the things that hold us up is, you know, for for many of us, it's our, it's our churches and it's our local schools and it's our book clubs. It's the ways that we see each other and somebody else knows what happened last week.
0: Yeah, So, um, what do you tell your graduate students about being a public intellectual?
1: Oh, um, yeah, other, uh, mm. um, well, many of them have written beautiful op-eds, so I think maybe their first question is, will it, um, will it ever hurt my chances on the job market if, yeah, a lot of, um, I think all of us are asking the same question, like, is, how do I develop my voice? Right. What will it sound like? Yeah. What will it feel like to hear it reflected back? What if no one reads it? <laughs> right. um, so I'm very, I'm, I'm very positive about, our, about encouraging them to get out there. Yeah. I think uh, not because it's, um, you know, and it's fun to have. Everyone wants clickbait. It is fun to have clickbait. Uh, but I think it's, it helps us all practice knowing how valuable our gifts are. Yeah. Like We've spent so long developing rich resources around topics that other people give themselves two hours to be an expert in and write about. So I think we're just a lot more, we are a lot more special than we give ourselves credit for. So I I want us all to, if we have a minute, none of us have a minute, but if we did.
0: To push that forward. Yeah, I do. So that raises a really interesting question that I have spent a lot of time talking with fellow scholars about, which is, journalism and journalists, right? So the journalists are the people that do amazing investigative work. And yet, at the same time, scholars don't like journalists for two reasons. One, their narrative is their narrative. They're not interested in being a platform for you. Yeah. And that's like the first thing you have to make <laughs> That's sure. a really good summary. Yeah. <laughs> that's, right. When you spend
1: three hours on the phone with a journalist right. and then you see you're like misquoted half a sentence. Exactly. Like, oh. Right.
0: And, and and you're great for them, but they're not so great for you. Yeah. And you are misquoted frequently. So, And and the question of the level of expertise is yeah. entirely different. So they're kind of our worst yeah. enemy and our best ally, you know, all at the same time. So, yeah given that you've had so much experience with that now and you believe so profoundly in the role of the scholar in the public sphere, talk to me about that relationship.
1: Well, and it's tricky. Like, I've been plagiarized several times where I'll all of a sudden read a summary of a talk I gave. But incredibly, someone else wrote it, and I'm very happy for her. Um, Several bodies. No more, (laughs) not just two bodies, but several
0: (laughs) more bodies, yeah.
1: I, um... I've come to believe that uh, part of the contribution we have is, is in part in nature, uh, part of the nature of the sources. So I have a lot of friends who write um, really tough pieces on, say, uh, uh, sexual abuse scandals inside of religious institutions. And the work that they do, it feels like they they can chip away at hard sources, just like, and then when was it? Was it a Tuesday? Did you meet with so-and-so? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just like, and it's uh, and then they're like outside their door, and then they're showing up around. I mean, they do things I would never do, and mm. it is wonderful. But soft sources, when I can sit down with someone and say, hey, did you really mean that? Like, what happened there? And uh, and then get a lovely long form account. I think in terms of some of the softer sources and the ability to create a beautiful larger narrative, this is where we reign supreme. Yeah. It's our ability to say, huh, that's weird. It all began in the 1840s, right. <laughs> and, like, and everyone else settled in by the fire. Yeah, right? We're great when everyone else just shifts into middle <laughs> distance. Right. Um,
0: but isn't isn't that itself an interesting possibility that you're raising? Which is, public scholars are not just um, you know using a different platform that's simpler for their work, yeah. but actually perhaps public scholarship. Could be an invi- a new invitational form. Yes, that is right. uh, about the long form, yeah. not the long form of the dissertation or the monograph, but some yeah. other f- long form. Yes, it is very countercultural what you're suggesting, however, right? Because oh, we Laurie. don't do long form anymore. So yeah.
1: no, but, we don't, and but, and it's such a privileged place in the journalistic totem pole to get right. that longer New Yorker essay. So it's not yeah. that our stuff isn't lovely enough to be a New Yorker essay. It's right. just that we didn't. That we didn't work for 20 years inside that one community to achieve that ring.
0: right? Right. Yeah. And you use the word, I think, soft a couple times. And it raises, I don't like the word soft because of its gendered <laughs> engagements. Uh-huh. Um, and I want to talk to you about that because we've had some conversations about yeah. gender in the public sphere. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and you have some really great insights about that because a suffering woman is just in public is really different than a suffering man. Oh yeah, her name is Kate. Right. It's not
1: Dr. Roller. Her name is Kate. Uh, She's yeah, she's very plucky. Um, I realized that when uh, it took me a while to realize that even if I like in the memoir about 40% of it was an account of my scholarly journey behind writing my Prosperity Gospel Movement, and that it was um, overwhelmingly just cultural critique, but it was all uh, branded as memoir because memoir is typically a female genre, and that uh, men that I knew that wrote very similar structures, uh, that they were offered this sort of uh, luxury of a universalizing tone, that they were thought leaders, uh, whereas I was Kate. And uh, it took me a minute to realize like the way that we feel that we're able to step into an expertise, like who gets to teach the master class. And uh, I, am, um, I did notice very quickly that if I did very well in my genre, and I'm not being ironic, this is just a true story, that if I did very well, that I would be invited to nicer and nicer yoga retreats. <laughs> and uh, I mean, it's, I'd love to go to Bali someday. Right. Um, but I wanted to be on a different kind of stage, uh, only because then we could, I think, encounter the ideas more honestly. I think the more they're obscured by the personal, uh, the more I think it 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 excludes women from the ability to have this kind of n- considered neutral public voice.
0: And if I may uh, perhaps uh, share an illustration that you gave earlier. Um, you're on a panel with a male journalist who's written a memoir, and you are a woman scholar who's written a memoir, and the male journalist has become the expert in the area that he's written the memoir about, and you have written a memoir about your personal experience.
1: They're like, when are you going to stop writing about your personal experience? Right. I was like, Weird, I thought I was writing about the American civil religion, but right. no, I guess I'm just writing about my cancer time. Right, yeah. And and so
0: how do you, as a woman in the public, push against that? And what are your ways of, of changing that? Like, did you turn to that, either the moderator or the male journalist, and say, actually, I'm an expert, too, kind of, sort of? or yeah, I, Something I, like that.
1: Yeah, yeah I did uh, use my direct eye contact and uh, less vocal fry. Um, I... Partly it's, um, I just, I, I really believe in what we do. Yeah. I just do. I think we have worked so hard to know what our ideas mean. Right. And uh, I, so that's partly why I love my podcast, is I get to talk to other people as experts in and experiencers of. Yeah. Uh, most of whom are women who don't, who don't, like all of us, are trying not to be eclipsed by just one thing. And so that is the that's, I mean, it's something I ended up writing a lot about in The Preacher's Wife, how um, most women find their way into the spotlight because of borrowed power, standing next to someone who gets to be the universalizing voice. Mm-hmm. And I think all for it, you know, plays in different ways, but we're struggling to escape our particularity. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, follow up and then I know there'll be lots of people who want to share comments and thoughts with you. Um, the question of sharing particularity, it's, it's a great way to think about, I, I sometimes feel in, in public discourse in particular that the particular also becomes feminized uh-huh. because it's about an experience, uh-huh. a single experience uh-huh. that may or may not be universalized. Yeah, exactly. um, but there's also a way in which I think in your journey as a public intellectual and a scholar, you've also been um, very committed to the particular. Um, yes. You told me wonderful stories about your relationship with your dad in that space. And I'm wondering, just as a final thing, before we open it up, if you could share a little bit about he, how he yeah. and your particular experience of him has grounded you as an expert in these broader questions.
1: Oh, sure. Um, uh, I don't know if it's normal that we got into this because one of our parents was in academia mm-hmm. and it just seemed at some point uh, less weird than usual but both my parents are academics and um and when they were younger they were very hopeful about it and then the job opportunities dried up in canada and my dad uh ended up following my mom to a job at the university of manitoba where it was a rough road for her because she was the only woman trying to get tenure and my dad uh my dad openly he just struggled they gave him at one point, he shared his office was also the custodial closet. <laughs> so uh, whenever we'd be in there, like four or five people would be coming in and out. And he was so grateful to get an office, he said. And, uh, and uh, what I learned from my dad, my dad for a while had uh, probably about like a, instead of a four, four, he had about, had about a seven, eight, because he only got paid about $1,500 a class.
0: Those are not hat measurements, so it's a course load.
1: Yeah, yeah. course load, yes. Yeah. and, uh, and uh, you know, he wouldn't get a grader, and he was the sessional, and so he ended up teaching, you know he was a tutor historian who was teaching history of Asian civilization, history of murder mysteries. Uh, a wonderful he would be so good at like, well, it's not true in the south of France, hoping no one would ask a follow-up question when we had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> um, And uh, it's what
0: Robertson Davies, a Canadian novelist, calls the professorial nod, where you just (laughs) nod as if you really know what the person's talking about. He
1: uh, he fell into a really savage depression. And that was before like I know the year that Prozac became generic in the Canadian marketplace because it was the year my dad stopped living in the basement. And whenever I walked in, he was surrounded by those thin little blue books Mm -hmm. uh, that he would just grade hundreds at a time. And uh, when he was about, when I was about 14, he moved away to take the only full-time job that had ever been offered to him, two provinces away. And he hated leaving us. But we understood that something in there was uh, a man trying to save his own life. And that something about our work, like if it's not recognized for too long, it uh, it just, it it corrodes something important, like something that has to bear up for us to keep doing like the purity of the work we do. And, uh, uh everything's fine. And, um, when he came back, uh, he gave up his job after a couple years there to come back and teach, um, the, uh, unwashed masses of the University of Manitoba undergraduate system. And he was, he came back thrilled. Mm. He stopped doing tutor history and started writing histories of Christmas just because he thought it was fun. And he was the kind of person who would ruin long car rides in July by being like, sweetie, what's your favorite Christmas carol? And <laughs> it's like, oh, I cannot talk about Good King Winslet's List like one more time yeah. with you. Um, but he found a passion. He didn't care anymore about um, never having had the feeling of getting somewhere. Yeah. And he decided to do it out of pure joy. Right. And watching him arrive there, was the place where I started into my desire to be an academic. Because yeah. if I realized that it, if it has its own fire yeah. and that it can burn so brightly that you can see the world more clearly, then, as he would say, your brain will always be a really fun place to be. Right, right. So yeah. anyway, that's kind of why I doubled down.
0: So what's inspiring and in that great place to turn it over to um, our colleagues here to, to talk more with you Um, is the way in which you are as committed to the public sphere in new ways as you are committed to academia. And I think that's a balance that so many of us, as we move in the American Academy of Religion to public understanding of religion, trying to define that, trying to create a space for that, and trying to see how different people live that.
1: Yeah, because usually no one's watching. It, or and if they a are, they, yeah.
0: they're kind of amused by you at a certain <laughs> level. But I think you've um, yeah. created a kind of contours for a really serious path, you yeah, know, sorry. in both spaces. So let's, with that, and we'll close with a couple more comments, but with that, let's turn it over. I'm sure there are folks who um, would love to engage and ask
1: questions of Kate. Hello, my friends. Literally, my friends. <laughs> How are you?
0: There we go. Thank you. And this you. is my dad's best friend. <laughs> I love you. Thank Hi.
1: you.
0: Okay. I'm good with silence, there. but I'm sure
3: there are <laughs> <laughs> So many things running through my mind. Kate, oh, hey. hey, thank hey, you Marla. so much Hi. for a wonderful talk, um, for a tremendous book. I've shared it with many people. Oh, thanks. Um, shared it with a friend whose husband was ill and of suffering from cancer and really wrestling with many of the questions and the onslaught of people's theologies cast upon them. And so the book was very helpful, she said, for her. Um, I did have a question. Something you raised about um, gender and being in the public sphere and was writing for the masses I went back as soon as you said that I went back to the cover of your book because I kind of have it if there's a picture of it in my mind yeah and to, everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved Kate Bowler and it doesn't say PhD uh-huh. was that a decision from your publisher or was that your decision to try to connect with more people right. in the public sphere. How did you make that decision? Because yeah. the book looks very inviting, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can, and I can imagine point if it's at my a publisher, PhD. if it's weird
1: for him. Um, right.
3: If it's a PhD, I have a feeling that it would have yeah. done something different. Yeah,
1: totally. Well, I, I, didn't st- <laughs> I didn't write that stuff. Um, I didn't write that stuff. But that was a question I always asked the women I was interviewing for that book, because uh, many of them had, for instance, M. Divs. But they were never Reverend Amy; they were always right. just Amy. And so, I do think part of uh, attempts to move from um, outside of academia into trade publishing typically strips, especially women, of and because like, the attempted accessibility it gets to our interested non-special, our, our much coveted interested non-specialist reader. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I think part of the way that all women are marketed. Is uh, t- attempting to be um, a very low entry barrier. She's friendly. She's nice. She won't exactly. use too many adjectives. She's right. Kate. Yeah. So yeah. that wasn't a that what that part wasn't a, <laughs> a conscious decision on my part. But I think you're absolutely right, and that was certainly true of the people inside the book too. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Hey, it's nice to see you. Hey. Hey.
4: Jason. Hi. Hi, Lori. And thank you, Laurie and Kate, for this conversation. Um, Kate, I teach a course at Augustana College, which is an undergraduate liberal arts school uh, called Suffering, Death, and Endurance. Uh, Just got its name changed to Suffering, Death, and the Vitality of Hope. And we read your book last year, the last time I taught the course. And the students really took to it and were moved by it and helped by it. Uh, which leads me to ask a question about the public and the academic. Sure. Uh, the, the trick for me in teaching 18 to 21-year-olds have been to find texts, that they can um, not, not slog their way through in a way that feels like all of our time is spent just understanding, but, but to, to get and then be able to do more with. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if you think of your work, your, your public work, as uh, including undergraduates or or younger students, um, I think mm-hmm. I've benefited mm-hmm. of seeing them more like that as I try to relate to them. They're not academics like yeah. we're academics. Yeah. Um, they're in some ways closer to the public. So would yeah. love to hear your thoughts.
1: Oh uh, well, and thank you for teaching my book. Mm-hmm. That's really kind. Because um, most of the audience that I've gotten to know, I call sad NPR. Um, they. Uh, they're smart. They're a little sad. Uh, um, I, I usually have an older uh, demographic of like listeners and readers, mm-hmm. um, typically because um, we all age into unawareness of our limitations. Uh, but I think the undergraduate audience is such a beautiful. they haven't been socialized out of asking big questions. They are. Uh, they're. They're not yet made to feel embarrassed uh... by their universality and uh... it's a it's a wonderful time just to say like hey do you think your you think your life's gonna work out (laughs) why why not Mm -hmm. um... i think it's uh... it's the time of big questions and i'm i just don't have a lot of direct access to them cuz i'm in the cuz i I teach in the masters on up Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, thank Thank you you.
0: we have time uh... probably for two questions if they're
1: very quick Um, i'll get long and lingering in my responses then
2: This is quick, and I want to, first of all, thank you for your absolute frankness. When I first saw the subtitle and other lies I have loved, (laughs) uh, I didn't realize how deep my sigh of relief would be because I would be so readily enraged by... Everything happens for a reason. God doesn't give you more than you can handle. Never. Yeah, it's you know, great like that. It, it, and people meant well, yeah. and I wanted to be compassionate and held back saying bullshit and worse things than that. But um, because they were seeking to comfort, usually, in the way yes. they could. Sometimes they were seeking to kind of keep it at yeah. a safe distance. Yeah. But um, it, the my question is... Um, for those who hanging on and I say this deliberately hanging on for dear life to yeah. those beliefs because they're facing yeah. something yeah. Uh, diagnosis or whatever that's so frightening and possibly terminal yeah. uh, how um, how do you how do you, how have you come to think about that, and yeah. the second thing, if there's time is i'm wondering how the folks who you know who are in these prosperity gospel movements yeah have responded to some of what you've written now in this very frank way.
1: Yeah.
0: Kate, I'm going to ask the person, the woman behind this woman to ask, and then you can sure. answer all of the questions as a yeah. way of wrapping up.
1: Thanks. Um, hi, my name's Jody Eichler-Levine. We, we have not met. Um, thank you for your book. Um, I have a quick question about humor, um, because I think when you talk about plucky, um, and yeah. in my own um, similar experience, you spend a lot of time trying to disarm people through humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wondered how that plays out in the public persona in terms of what you're talking about about mm-hmm. gender because mm-hmm. I think um, humor does incredibly powerful work. Um, so this is a half-thought-out question, but it also no, good. Um, does yeah. very complicated work uh-huh. in terms of being the right kind of suffering person. Sure. So I wondered about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so to that I would say, um, yes. So, I mean, humor is... Uh, in part because um, most people refuse to engage with the intensity of the topic. It does, it does I, I hope, allow for oddly more frankness in the end. It does sweeten it a bit, but then it hopefully just gently punches people in the esophagus. Um, so, uh, but I do think it's important always, especially in trying to figure out like which hats we get to wear. So when would I also wear an expert hat? And making sure that there's enough opportunities for me to be just, like, structured blazer. Um, and, uh, and we all need a chance to, like, show off what we know and that one can't obscure the other. Um, I think uh, the, the way that I approach, um, that, I think the question of other people's explanations for their lives is such a tender one. Because I, I, am, I am over lessons. I really am. I'm over being a problem that other people need to solve in real time in front of me as they try to figure out why it's me and not them. Mm. Uh, But I don't want to ever be above meaning. And so offering people, especially those who are wanting to hold on to a reason that something has happened, giving them enough space to feel like the particularity of their lives and their pain is also deeply cherished. And if it's in a religious context, that they are also deeply loved by God and that and that, finding beauty in the darkness is not the same thing as shining a flashlight on it and explaining away why it happened. So, a little of both, I hope.
0: So, Kate, in the spirit of a little of both, um, let me just close by thanking you because uh, in addition to your courage and your humor Uh and your grace, uh, you've really given us a way of thinking about walking both paths of public and scholarly academy and world um, in ways that most of us hadn't even thought of. Uh So for that newness and for that teaching for all of us today, please join me in thanking Kate Bowler.